Good morning, everybody. Whoa. That was a rather exuberant good morning, wasn't it? Not too awfully long ago, I uh, was at a friend's house for breakfast. That was convenient. I love breakfast. And his wife emerged from the kitchen with a platter of freshly baked, bite-sized blueberry muffins. For those of you who are wondering, they were whole grain. Each one had three to five plump blueberries in them. Does that sound good? You looking forward to breakfast? Now, I distinctly remember that she said, as she brought them to us, bite-sized muffins. And as she offered them, I took one from the plate and I inserted it in my mouth. And I began to chew as she watched with a puzzled look on her face. She stood there holding the plate. I took another. I inserted it in my mouth. I chewed and enjoyed and swallowed, and she was still staring at me kind of odd. I said, is there a problem? She said, you're putting the whole muffin in your mouth at once. I said, you told me that they were bite-sized muffins. Are they not bite-sized muffins? She said, well, that's what they're called, but... So I crossed my arms and I said, you show me how it's done. So she took one from the plate and it was such a long, drawn-out affair. Three, four bites, dainty little bitty bites. So I took another and I inserted the whole thing in my mouth and showed her how it's to be done. She did not follow suit. And I have learned over the years that there are two kinds of world. There are big bite people and there are little bite people. And this morning, I am asking you to take, what do you suppose? A big bite. I'm going to ask you to put the whole muffin in your mouth. That means you're going to have to sit up a little straighter and breathe a little deeper. I know it's early. I feel it too. As I said on a previous morning, my body is still in Ireland. So please, engage your mind with me as we pursue this material this morning, and I believe that we will be immensely blessed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you this morning. You are so beautiful in heart, in mind, in the way that you have interacted with us down through history. We're deeply impressed with who you are. Please, Lord, arrest our attention this morning and show us who we are in relation to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm going to begin this morning by making a statement that will require some historic analysis. And the statement is simply this, in keeping with our theme. It's time for us as Seventh-day Adventists 
to be about our Father's business. Well, I'm not done yet. Wait a minute. It's time for us as Seventh-day Adventists to be about our Father's business. Let's just put a comma there, comma. But our estimation and idea of what that business entails has not always aligned in our history with God's idea of what that business is. And there is a huge problem with disagreeing with God. He's always right. That's the problem. And we as a people historically disagreed with God. And that disagreement has never been resolved. Now, in order to move forward and to discover by means of Scripture and the prophetic account, as well as by the modern prophetic voice among us as a people that has been speaking into Adventism all these many years, in order for us to grasp what that business is and to begin aligning ourselves with God's idea of what we need to be about in this world, sufficient enough to push the eschatological buttons, if you will, and become the people that God intended for us to be all along. In order to achieve that, we need to look at our history. The fact of the matter is, we as Seventh-day Adventists, we, we carry the heavy weight of a dual identity. On the one hand, we bear the identity of remnant. We are the remnant church of Bible prophecy. Do you feel that? Do you feel that weight? And in relation to that aspect of our identity as a people, God says with prophetic hope, here are they that keep the commandments of God by virtue of the faith of Jesus. But we carry another identity as a people, the Laodicean identity. And with regards to that aspect of our dual identity, God says, you think that you're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, but my estimation of you is that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You are experiencing a spiritual poverty, God says, Ty doesn't say, God says, that has me, God, the creator of the universe, experiencing nausea to the point that I feel like I won't say the word. You can just read it in Revelation chapter three. So we, we as a people carry the weight of this dual identity. The remnant church of Bible prophecy with a prophetic mission and calling, with an identity that God envisions for us but is not yet reality in the sense that Corporately, the second coming of Jesus has been 
sufficiently hastened to become a reality. In fact, the prophetic voice among us would use a very heavy word to describe our current position as a people, and that is that we have, quote-unquote, delayed the second advent. If we were to just ponder the gravity of that reality as a people, it would be more than we could bear. And so God has been very kind to us. And he has circled around over and over again trying to communicate to us as a people. Now, we trace our origins. Let's just get right down to business. We trace our beginnings as a people to 1844. If we do not trace our beginnings as a people to 1844, if this date, if this prophetic date comes into question, if it becomes suspect in the Adventist theological awareness, we've already lost the great controversy and our part in it before we take another step forward. Apart from this significant date in history and the fact that Adventism was birthed into existence as the fulfillment to a prophecy that reached to this year, apart from that prophetic identity, we literally have no reason to exist as Seventh-day Adventists, as a distinctive people. Now, our position in prophetic history is crucial we, we exist somewhere in time, in the prophetic timeline. And it's very important for us to understand, not because I say so, but because God has given us the books of Daniel and Revelation and has actually given us a series of what we call great prophetic lines that move in a looping fashion, in a repeat and enlarged fashion through Daniel and Revelation, grounded in history and then reaching forward to the second advent, each of these great prophetic lines. It's crucial that we understand our position in that great sweep of prophetic history. Where are we in time and what is our identity directly relational to that positioning? Well, according to Daniel and Revelation, and this is the short version, this is the part I'm not gonna go to a lot of trouble to demonstrate and prove to you because I'm assuming that there is biblical literacy in this group. To the degree that there isn't, I would encourage you to explore these subjects in greater detail, but I'm not gonna be proving anything in what I'm, I'm constructing a picture right now that is composed of Daniel 7, 8 and 9, Revelation 10 through 14, roughly. That's the passages of Scripture. Those are the passages of Scripture that I'm drawing upon to construct this sweep of history and our position in it. So what is our position? According to the book of Daniel and Revelation, but specifically Daniel chapter 7, there is what we might call accurately the reign of bad religion a colossal counterfeit system, a system that purports to be Christianity and in fact is not. This reign of bad religion occurs down through such a large sweep of history that it literally impacts the entire human race. 
And according to Revelation 17, this reign of bad religion becomes the mother of all the abominations of the earth. That is, this power has so sufficiently misrepresented the character of God in history that the entire human perception of God has been radically impacted for the worse. 1260 years this power reigns over not only the bodies of human beings, to quote Revelation 18, not only over the bodies of men and women, enslaving human beings, but this power reigns over the psyche, the theological awareness, and this power reigns diabolically over the human perception of the character of God. And God is defamed in human thinking through this power. According to Daniel chapter 7, as well as chapter 8, this power is characterized by two chief characteristics. There are more, but these are the two that stand out for our purposes this morning. This power, number one, is characterized by blaspheming the Most High, blaspheming the character of God. In other words, in more modern easy to understand vernacular, this power purporting to be true Christianity and the rightful representative of God on earth has formulated a doctrinal system that grossly misrepresents the character of God. This power speaks great words against the Most High in its doctrinal system. It's a covert operation. It's a grand masquerade. It's purporting to be God's representative. It is purporting to teach the world who God is and simultaneously slipping poison into the message so that human beings begin to serve God out of a slavish, groveling fear on the one hand or to shake their fist and deny the very existence of God because it's psychologically and emotionally untenable to actually love a God like that. So you've got the reign of bad religion, characteristic number one, this power will blaspheme the name of God. That is, this power will defame the character of God in the thinking and feeling process of human beings. Are you with me so far? This power reigns, according to Daniel, for a significant swath of history that encompasses what we call the Dark Ages. But then according to prophetic history, when we come to the book of Revelation, chapters 10 and 11, which parallel Daniel, we discover that something happens in reaction against this defamation campaign. And we're going to refer to that as the reaction of modern atheism. That is to say, according to Revelation chapter 10, in direct psychological, emotional, and a raging, violent reaction against papal Christianity and the papal picture of God, human beings began to declare that no such God could exist. And in Revelation 10, this power is called the beast from the bottomless pit. Not to be confused with the beast of Revelation 13, that is the beast that is the reign of bad religion. That is the beast that is the papal power. But the beast from the bottomless pit, that is the modern emergence 
of atheism in human history manifested first in the French Revolution. If you're unfamiliar with that aspect of the prophetic scenario, you really need to go to the book Great Controversy and read the chapter called The French Revolution. The French Revolution, according to the book Great Controversy, figures into the prophetic scenario very significantly. Why? Because what's essentially happening, according to Ellen White in that chapter, is that the reign of bad religion, that is the papal picture of the character of God, all right, that picture of the character of God begins to become so untenable, so unsustainable to the human spirit that is made for liberty and freedom and for love, that according to Ellen White, there begins to emerge a a reaction against that picture in Western Europe, and the French Revolution is the birth of modern atheism, and we realize that atheism didn't get its start in our world as a scientific atheism, but rather as a protest atheism. Darwin's theory of evolution wouldn't come for many years future to the French Revolution, and yet atheism was getting off the ground. Why? Because it wasn't a movement that arose on the discovery of certain aspects of biology. It wasn't a scientific atheism. It was a protest atheism. One author calls this reign of bad religion, that is the work that was done by the papal power down through that 1260-year period of time, one author calls it the uglification of the character of God. And God was made so ugly in human thinking that people began to shake their fist heavenward and say no such God could exist. If God's like that, no thank you. The birth of modern atheism. The beast from the bottomless pit emerges on the premise of a doctrinal system that includes things like purgatory and eternal torment and penance and the entire package of ideas that misrepresents the character of God. Now follow very carefully. In the prophetic scenario, in the history as it unfolds, our position is precisely here. In other words, the reign of bad religion, which misrepresents the character of God, which then gives rise to the reaction of unbelief, then the rise of the Advent movement. Adventism was born to the scene of human history in order to be God's answer to the misrepresentation of his character by false counterfeit Christianity and to give the unbelieving world that was reacting against that false picture something beautiful to believe in. A picture of God, an accurate picture of God that would convey his love and his goodness so incredibly clear and beautiful that Adventism came into existence to give to the world an unprecedented picture of clarity regarding the character of God. Ellen White would go so far as to say late in her ministry, but over and over again throughout her ministry, but this particular statement, she would go so far as to say that the last message of mercy to be given to the world is, does anybody know? a revelation of God's character of love. Why? Well, in her context, she says that God has been misapprehended 
A darkness has settled upon the world theologically, intellectually, emotionally. Human beings have reacted against a picture of God that cannot harmonize with free will, cannot elicit free will in voluntary love. You cannot believe that doctrinal system that the papacy foisted upon the world and not experience either fear or denial. There's not a third option. You can't deny the picture's inherent ugliness, and so you only have one option, really, and that is to either deny it, or two options, I guess, deny it or say, well, I don't want to be found fighting against a God who could do that to me down through all eternity future, burn me forever and ever in conscious torment, so I'll, I'll, I'll get on my knees, I'll worship, I'll go through the motions, I'll do whatever he tells me to do. But there's not a third option. There's not the option of looking at that theological picture and falling in love. There's not the option of adoration. There's not the option of saying, oh, what a beautiful, incredible God in all fear giving way to voluntary love. That's not an option in that theological perspective. And so Adventism is born to the scene of human history for the specific purpose of repainting the character of God on the hearts and minds of human beings. And the prophetic scripture, above all others, that gave us our marching orders, if you will, that gave us our missional understanding and our self-identity, our awareness of who we are, is Daniel 8.14. This scripture, if it doesn't mean what we as a people historically have interpreted, to me, interpreted it to mean, if Daniel 8.14, as we understood it, understand it, is not true, then we have no right to exist as a people. Under 2,300 days, then something's going to happen. The sanctuary will be cleansed. Now, what we often miss is that these words in Daniel 8:14 are spoken by an angel. Follow this very carefully. These words are spoken by one angel answering the question of another angel. In verse 13, Daniel overhears this conversation between these two angels. The one angel says, how long? And then he talks about certain events. How long? Well, what's the context? Why is the angel crying out, how long? How long what? Well, in the context of chapter 8 and chapter 7 of Daniel, the question is, how long will the reign of bad religion misrepresent the character of God through its doctrinal system and through using force and coercion, persecuting in the name of God? By the way, parenthetical statement, I'm just reminded that I said there were two chief characteristics. I gave one and I just now inserted the second. This power defames the character of God and uses force and coercion in the name of God. Purporting to represent Jesus with a crucifix in one hand and a sword in the other, the union of church and state can only but produce a misconception of the character of God and what he's after, what he wants, and who he is. 
And so this power, this power is doing its dastardly deeds of misrepresentation down through history, and an angel cries out, how long is this going to go on and on and on? How long until something else happens in history to bring an end to, to challenge this colossal misrepresentation of God? How long will this power be able to go on? And then another angel answers back that angel, and Daniel's just overhearing this angelic conversation. In Daniel 8.14, the other angel says, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Notice that Daniel 8.14 is the answer to the question regarding God's character being misrepresented through a theological system and a practice of persecution. And the angel, the second angel, is telling us in the conversation that at the conclusion of this prophetic period, something different and new will begin to take place in human history. Another kind of movement will be born on the scene of human history that will begin to set things right. The sanctuary will be cleansed. The language here is very specific. The reign of bad religion had brought God down to earth in a system in which human beings were taught to look to God through human works and through human priesthood to gain salvation. But this true sanctuary in heaven with the one and only true mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ, was eclipsed from people's view. And now, in 1844, there's going to be a shift of focus back to the heavenly sanctuary where Jesus as our mediator and our high priest ministers on our behalf and salvation by grace through faith alone, not by penance, not under threat of eternal torment, no purgatory that you can pay hard cold cash to get less minutes, hours, days, years in. That entire psycho edifice of false theology is going to be challenged now with a new system, which is really a recovery of truth, and putting before the world an irresistibly beautiful picture of the character of God that will make love possible again in the relationship. Adventism is foretold in this scripture as a movement to be born. Now, the parallel passages in Revelation, chapters 10 through 14 and then into 18, but in chapter 10 specifically, you will remember, I hope you will remember, that in chapter 10, God asks John to engage in a prophetic enactment, so to speak. He says, John, I want you to do something. Yes, Lord, what do you want me to do? Eat this book. You remember? So John eats what is called the little book. It's a very strange metaphor, isn't it? To eat a book. But it can only mean one thing. Process the content of the book. Understand it, right? So John eats the little book, and we as a people understand that the little book is what? The book of Daniel. Daniel's prophecies were sealed to human understanding, and now... At some juncture in history, those prophecies are to be unsealed. They're to be understood. And John is enacting what's going to happen in the future in the birth of the Advent movement. John, eat the little book, and it was what in his mouth? Sweet in his mouth, but it was bitter in his stomach, and we call this the great 
disappointment. They anticipated the second coming of Jesus because they thought that the 2300-day prophecy reaching to 1844 would be finally realized in the second advent. When Jesus didn't come, that sweet anticipation was disappointed and it was bitter in the belly. But here's the crucial thing to understand right now. While there was a bitter disappointment, the last verse of chapter 10 of Revelation says you must prophesy, what's the word? Again, before many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. The movement has experienced a great disappointment. The people have been scattered, but get this. It's not really the end of the movement, it's just the beginning. This movement had been saying something to the world, prophesying to the world, teaching something, preaching something to the world. Now it seemed that the movement was for naught and it was falling apart and God tapped the movement on the shoulder and said, no, it's not over. It's just the beginning. You need to prophesy again. And it's going to be on a global scale. Many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Get ready because we're launching a movement. We're not ending the movement. So you must prophesy again. Well, what are we to prophesy? Well, as that part of history unfolded, this is so fascinating. These are young people, by the way. You've got Ellen White, who is a mere 16, 17 years old at this point. You've got J.N. Andrews, the scholar among the group, who's just around 15, 16. By the time he reaches his 20th birthday, he has most of the New Testament memorized. So he just sits there as they study and he says, well, chapter and verse, that'll help here. That's convenient to have that dude in the room, right? And as this movement, largely composed of teenagers and young adults in their 20s, regroup and begin to try and understand the disappointment, something begins to happen. And this is so, so crucial for us as a people to understand. God had just said, you must prophesy again, right? And so they're studying, they're pouring over scripture to understand what had gone wrong. Now watch this, Revelation eleven nineteen, something happens. The temple of God was opened where now? In heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. Now these people are not literally, geographically as it were, transported to the heavenly temple. How do they enter into the, to the sanctuary? By Bible study and by faith. As they search the scriptures, the young Advent movement finds itself standing in the sanctuary, but they find themselves standing by Bible study and faith in a very particular part of the sanctuary. According to this scripture, where do they find themselves standing? Not in the courtyard, not in the holy place, but specifically in the most holy place, where the single article of furniture is the Ark of the Covenant. Are you with me so far? Now, if you, by Bible study and prayer, find yourself standing in the most holy place, you're going to start to notice things. What are you going to notice as you look around, flipping the pages of Scripture? There you are. There they were. Ellen White, Jane Andrews, Joseph Bates, the old guy among them, Uriah Smith. There they are. They're in the most holy place. The temple of God is open, and they begin to notice things. What do they notice? Well, first of all, they notice the ark. What's this all about? They lift the lid, the solid gold lid called the mercy seat, and they look in through Bible study to discover, to rediscover the content of the box. And there's the Ten Commandments, praise God. And as they encounter the Ten Commandments, the 17-year-old girl goes into vision. 
She comes out of vision and she says, great discovery, and I just had a vision, and for some reason there's a halo of light in my vision around the fourth commandment. Oh, let's look at it again. And the Sabbath truth is discovered, rediscovered. The immutability of God's law is discovered. Do you see what's happening as they stand in the most holy place? A doctrinal system is being composed through Bible study. As they pour over Scripture, over the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, over the sanctuary system, as they pour over the content of the ark, and they look around in the most holy place, they not only notice the mercy seat, they not only notice the law and the fourth commandment in particular, but they notice that there are two covering cherubs perched on either end of the ark. And they begin to study and to understand that there's a cosmic dimension to the great controversy, that angels as well as men are involved. They discover the identity of one of those covering cherubs as Lucifer who defected. And the great controversy narrative, the great controversy theme begins to develop in Adventist understanding. They turn around and they see the veil that separates the holy from the most holy place and they notice that it's different than the other two curtains, the one into the holy and the one into the courtyard. This one in the most holy place is distinctively embroidered with gold thread, embroidered with angels. When you're standing in the most holy place, you are in the presence of the law of God. You're in the presence of the mercy seat. You're in the presence of covering cherubs and a mystery of one defecting. You're in the presence of angels that are surrounding the Shekinah glory and you're realizing the big picture of a great controversy between good and evil that somehow centers on the law of God and the gospel represented by the mercy seat. Do you see what's happening? A doctrinal system as these young people and a few older are pouring over scripture to understand the disappointment, a doctrinal system of truth emerges. And they now have something to say to the world. What did the scripture say? You must prophesy what? Again, which begs the question, prophesy what? What are we to say, Lord? Well, the message was forming. Now follow this very carefully. Right then and there, there were two early visions that God gave to the Advent movement. One he gave to William Miller, the other he gave to Ellen White. These were what I call, what I like to refer to as course-setting visions. This is God in the early part of the Advent movement saying, here's the direction I want you to go and this is what I have in mind, okay? The first one by William Miller is the vision of the jewel box or the jewel casket. The word casket just meant box or chest, treasure box, not casket as in coffin, okay? But William Miller finds himself in vision. You can read it in the book Early Writings, the whole vision. And as he is in vision, he finds himself in a room. And in the room, he sees that there's a table and there's a box and there is a single key attached to the box. Of course, he takes the key, just as you would. He opens the box, and as he does, he sees his words, not mine, all sorts and sizes of jewels. He describes them. There are diamonds, there are rubies, there are sapphires, there are emeralds. He's describing them. And in his vision, he says that they were, his words, not mine, beautifully, what's the word? Arranged, these jewels. These are the jewels, the gems of truth that God is reassembling with 
the Advent movement to be given as a precious treasure to the world. But as Miller is in vision and he sees these jewels beautifully arranged, people begin to come into the room and handle the jewels and bring in counterfeit jewels, he says. And they're scattered around the, war, uh, the, the room and, and they're mixed with the debris that they brought in on their feet. And Miller is so distraught, he stands back in the room. He's looking at the confusion and he's just so overcome with grief at what's happening to these precious jewels. And then in his vision, he says, but then a man with a dirt brush entered the room. We would call that a broom. And this is Jesus in his vision. Jesus enters the room and begins to sweep. Isn't this an interesting parable of our Savior's work? (laughs) He's sweeping the debris and the false jewels out and Jesus, the man with the dirt brush, takes up the true gems and puts them back in the box. And then William Miller says this, they shone with 10 times their former glory. This was an early vision in which God was saying to the Advent movement, a shining, luminous proclamation of truth that will reassemble the gems of lost truth down through the dark ages. This movement is going to bring it all back together and give that treasure chest of knowledge to the world. What a powerful vision. But then the young girl, Ellen White, She's just a teenager at this point, and God gives her a vision. And in her vision, she says, I saw in my dream, I dreamed of seeing, these are her words, not mine, I dreamed of seeing a temple. So picture the young girl, she's in vision, she sees this massive structure, but it's a peculiar architectural design. She enters the room, into the temple, and she says that it is, she saw that it was Supported by, would you say it out loud with me? Supported by one immense pillar. Strange building. Big edifice. One pillar. This is the temple of truth. This is the doctrinal system that God is composing with Adventism. This is the entire picture that God wants to be given to the world. And the whole structure of theological truth is supported by how many? One immense pillar. And as the young girl Ellen White ponders what this symbolism might mean, she looks closer at the one immense pillar and she says, to this pillar was tied a lamb all mangled and bleeding. What does the pillar symbolize? What does it represent? The cross of Jesus Christ that we talked about yesterday morning. That one immense pillar of truth is the matchless, Ellen White's words, not mine, the matchless love of God manifested in the sacrifice of Jesus at the cross. This is God saying through an early course-setting vision to the Advent movement, you're about to discover this, this incredible system of truth, but there is one pillar of truth that supports the entire edifice of truth. Jesus Christ and him crucified is to remain central to the Adventist theological understanding. This is God early in our formative stages as a movement saying this is what it has to look like in order to make sense for the world. 
Later on, she would, using no symbolism, simply cut to the chase and tell us exactly what's going on here. Faith I Live by, page 50. There is one great central truth to be kept ever before the mind in the searching of the scriptures. What is that one pillar? What is that one central truth? Christ and him crucified. Now watch this. Every other truth. Can you name some of them? Is this movement discovering some truth? Yes or no? Oh yeah. Can you name some of them? The immutability of God's law, the investigative judgment, the second advent, the Sabbath, prophecy. Do you see what she's saying? Not me, her. Do you see what she's saying? The prophetic voice among us. She's saying one great central truth, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now watch, every other truth is invested with influence and what? Power corresponding to its relation to this theme. Grammatically, contextually, what is this theme? Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is the power and influence of the Adventist message, or it is to be. Now, at this point, a divine diagnosis was in order because the new movement has been launched. These people are studying the scriptures. This system of truth is being discovered and God has to step forward early in the stage of Adventist development with a diagnosis. On the one hand, watch this carefully, the Philadelphian era of the church, the era of brotherly love was one in which God said, I have set before you, the Advent people, by the way, historically, an open door and no man can shut it. What was the open door that God set before the Advent movement? the door into the most holy place. That is the Adventist interpretation and understanding of this verse. That's the specific interpretation that we hold as a people. The most holy place was open. God's door was open, but our door became closed. Then the Philadelphian age gave way to the Laodicean period. And we find ourselves as a people in the precarious position between two doors. One is open and one is closed. God's door is open into the most holy place and all that he envisions for this people. But our door became closed. And corporately, this verse, behold, I stand at the door and knock, while it can be applied to individual hearts, and it should be, It was a corporate diagnosis. God said, you have an estimation of yourself, speaking directly to Seventh-day Adventists. You think you're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, but you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You have need. You have spiritual poverty. You have need. And I'm on the outside knocking to get into Adventism. This is astounding in our history. Ellen White, early on in 1852, And then again in 1859, very early, note the dates, in our history began to identify the Seventh-day Adventist, the Advent movement, as the Laodicean church. The words addressed to the Laodicean church describe the Advent people's present condition perfectly. I was shown that the testimony to the Laodiceans applies to God's people at the present time, 1859. This is very early in our history. And then a series of diagnostic statements were made through our history. 
Please follow these. I'll give you just four of them. This is Ellen White, the prophetic voice among us, making assessment at various junctures in order to create this picture. First of all, notice, number one, diagnostic statement number one. The truth for this time is broad in its outline, far-reaching and embracing many doctrines. Would you agree? Would you say amen to that? Okay? But these doctrines are not detached items which mean little. What does she mean they're not detached items? These doctrines God has given us are not free-floating truths that are unrelated to one another. They're not detached items. What are they then? They are united by golden threads forming a complete what? Whole with Christ as the living center. So something was going on in Adventism in which we were beginning to segregate the truths that God has given us and to detach them from the centrality of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And the prophet is warning us, diagnostic statement number two, we began to develop something that she put her finger on, a sensitive nerve. On the one hand, religionists generally, that is the wide evangelical and Protestant world of Christianity, on the one hand, religionists generally, what have they done? They've divorced the law from what? The gospel. This is called antinomianism. Laying aside the law, it's been abolished, it's been done away with. The law of God is unnecessary. The antinomian track of theology. On the one hand, religionists generally have divorced the law from the gospel, but that's not her point. While we, who's we here? Who's we here? Seventh-day Adventists. While we have, on the other hand, we have done, almost done the same from another standpoint. Okay, so what have we done, Ellen? Prophet, tell us, what have we done? We have not held up before the people the righteousness of Christ and the full significance of his great plan of redemption. We have left out Christ and his matchless love and brought in theories and reasonings and preached argumentative discourses. Adventism became known for this argumentative discourse kind of approach to the world. This detached item, point by point, which in and of itself is not bad, but becomes seriously problematic when Jesus is removed from the equation and the cross and God's matchless love is not figured into the picture. And so we began to formulate a method of approaching the world that was probably best characterized by Uriah Smith's book, Synopsis of Present Truth. If you can get a hand, your hands on the book, you'll read the whole thing or just the table of contents and you will find this approach developed as a fine art. Diagnostic statement number three, like the offering of Cain, the danger has been presented to me again and again of entertaining as a people false ideas on what subject? Justification by faith. I have been shown for years that Satan would work in a special manner to confuse the mind on this point. What point? Justification by faith. The law of God has been largely dwelt upon and has been presented to congregations almost as destitute of the knowledge of Jesus Christ and his relation to the law as was the offering of Cain. She's describing developments in Adventism. Now we've moved 
in another direction in overcorrection where now we have the tension in Adventism of a legalism on the one hand and an antinomian tendency on the other hand because the pendulum has been swinging in Adventism down through our history. Diagnostic statement number four, the preaching of Christ crucified has been strangely neglected by our people. Huh. Many who claim to believe the truth have no knowledge of faith in Christ by experience. Astounding. There must be a life-giving power in the ministry. Life must be infused into the missionaries in every place that they may go forth giving the trumpet no uncertain sound, but with heaven-sent awakening power such as can be found only in the preaching of Jesus Christ, his love, his forgiveness, his grace. And so two pictures developed in Adventism that we need to ponder and choose between. The first picture that developed was characterized in 1876. I think the date is discernible there in the lower right-hand corner for you. This picture was created as an evangelistic tool. It was created for the specific purpose that we create PowerPoint today or New Beginnings DVDs for the purpose of, it's a communication device. And they would set this up on a big easel and with a stick they would point to various parts of the composite picture. Now you'll notice the picture and in the picture there is, I hope you can see it, there is in the picture that was commissioned for Adventist evangelists and preachers, there is the tree of life that is large and imposing in the middle of the picture with the two tablets as it were, the Ten Commandments hanging from the tree of life. Jesus Christ and him crucified is present in the composite picture, slightly off to your right and receding a bit. That's the picture. Now watch this. This is 1876. This is the general picture that is being developed and this is a picture that Ellen White saw fit to recommission with some alterations in 1883. Same picture different picture actually and in this picture it's retitled Christ the way of life and notice what the large imposing point of attention is what is it you say it Jesus Christ and him crucified is the law present in the picture at all where is it now it's represented by Sinai what for you would be the upper left hand corner and in that upper left-hand corner, you have Sinai with the clouds and the, the lightning. And now it's, it, 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 it's a picture in which the law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. But the law is the knowledge of sin. But there's no saving virtue in even the Ten Commandments. Jesus is the Savior. And he must be preached with power pervasive throughout Adventist theology so that the obedience to the law that this people are called upon to render to God is an obedience of faith. So that it is a people, we are, we become a people who keep the commandments of God, yes, by virtue of the faith of Jesus. So that that faith that Paul says that works or is energized by love becomes the foundation of our obedience. This is neither antinomianism, a rejection of or minimizing of the law, 
nor is it, on the other hand, legalism. This is the law of God put in its proper perspective in relation to the gospel, giving a quality of obedience that is fueled by the love of Christ. And this was the picture that Ellen White recommissioned to be given to Adventist evangelists and preachers and to be given to the world. Friends, the bottom line is this. In Adventist history, God called us to a specific mission. That mission that God gave us was to give to the world a picture of the character of God that would arouse and produce voluntary love returning back to him a quality of obedience to his law that is actuated, that is fueled by the love of Christ. The system of truth that God then gave to this people is only as powerful as its grounding in Jesus Christ and him crucified is. Jesus must be held central, not a flimsy, sentimental, shallow, cotton candy, sweet Hollywood Jesus, a powerful Jesus with content. The content of the entire doctrinal system, but a content that produces a quality of relationship with God that is by faith alone in Christ. Righteousness by faith in Christ. This is the message, this is the picture that God has asked us as a people to give to the world. This is the business that we as a people are called upon to go about getting done. It's time to be about our Father's business. And that business is to preach with power the full-orbed Adventist message, prophetically and doctrinally, centered in Christ and him crucified to give it influence and power before the world. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for calling us and anybody in the world who will hear to be a part of this movement, this revolution that you have called into existence. This theological revolution that is intended, Lord, to Give to the world a picture of your character that is so clear, so beautiful, so doctrinally advantageous that it is intellectually tenable because of the picture that it paints of you. And at the same time, it is motivating because Jesus is so central to the picture in all his matchless love and beauty that people will want to know you and love you and worship you. Thank you, Father. Empower us as a people to know who we are and to be about our Father's business. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.